and begin reading it. <laughs> That's how I feel preaching sometimes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> okay, we got to get spiritual. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> Psalms 102, verse 24, says, I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure, yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. And then to Numbers chapter 23, in verse 19, says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Somebody say amen to that. Amen. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning on the unchangeable God. The unchangeable God. How many know that God never changes? And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, change is defined as to alter, to vary, to modify. It means to make or to become different. Change implies making either an essential different, difference often amounting to a loss of original identity or a substitution of one thing or another. How many remember a time when you said something to your spouse you shouldn't have said and then you wish you could go back and change that? Or you did something that you shouldn't have done, and you wish you could go back and change that. So change implies error often, and, and it implies that we're not perfect yet, and that we're not all that we should be yet, so we have to change. Now, if you're here this morning and you feel like that you don't ever need to change anything, then God bless you, you're perfect, you're ready to go be with Jesus. But I hope you live a long life. But still, the rest of us, you know, I really don't think anybody would say that here. But we all have to change. And really, whether you want to change or not, you're going to. That's just how it is. So you could lock yourself up in a log cabin in the mountains somewhere and, and, and be far away from people and from civilization. You can order all of your groceries from Walmart and pick it up. And all of your stuff from Amazon and never have to face a single person. And guess what? You would still change. That circumstance alone would change you. Some for the better, probably, and a whole lot for the worse. But you would change. But God is unchangeable. It is literally impossible for God to change. He cannot be transformed Varied, mutated, amended, modified, replaced, or swapped out for another God. He's unchangeable. But in life, change is constant. In fact, there are no constants in life except for the fact that there is change. Everything is going to change. I have a saying that I often fall back on in life that I've recently kind of developed over the last 10 years or so. And it simply goes like this. No season is forever. Every season has an ending. Good seasons will end, so enjoy them. And difficult seasons also will end, so endure them. 
But one thing you can absolutely rest assured on is that nothing is permanent in this life. Nothing is, everything is temporary. In fact, God designed the universe itself to change. As time goes on, the universe not only forms elements and atoms and clumps and clusters together that lead to stars and galaxies, but the universe itself expands and cools all at the same time. And the universe continues to expand even today, growing at a rate of six and a half light years in all directions per year as time goes on. I said last night, some of you were here, a light year is the distance light travels in a single year going in a straight line. Light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. That's really fast. It can go around the earth several times in a single second. And if you look at how far light can travel in 10 minutes, it can go all the way to the sun in just 11 minutes. Light. That's how quickly light travels. And how far would light travel in a single year? That's a light year. So the universe expands six and a half light years per year. It's changing. And even our restless earth is also changing. Tectonic plates drift, the crust quakes, volcanoes erupt, air pressure falls, storms form, and precipitation results. We have hurricanes, we have tornadoes, we have tsunamis, mudslides, and other natural catastrophes, all resulting from our ever-changing earth. Nations also change. You may have noticed that America is not the same country as it was 50 or 60 years ago. Our elders would say a big amen to that. The America that Sister Waller's generation grew up in is a totally different and morally bankrupt country than we were when she was a child. And it's not all bad. Some things have gotten better. Many things have gotten better. But many things have gotten worse as well. And that's just how change goes. Seasons change. Life changes. Relationships change. Churches change. You change. We all change. But God is the same as he was from the very dawn of creation. And out of all the natural catastrophes since the earth was first created, nations rising and falling and man sinning and sinning in the earth, nothing has ever changed God. Not a single thing. He's the same as he was from the very first moment the thought entered his heart to do any of this. He's the same then. Because, as I said already, change implies either getting better or getting worse. But change, by definition, is always either one or the other. It implies learning and sometimes growing like a lessons learned type of situation. At HCA where I work, we have what we call the valley of despair. And it means that with, with every major change, you know, whether it's the implementation of a new system or whether it's you know, like a new leadership change or, or leadership philosophy, whatever it is, there's always going to be the valley of despair. And the valley of despair precedes that time when things level out and things seem normal again. And, and, and at the end of this valley of despair, whenever we've been let out of it, we have, you know, we have a meeting in the conference room and we have a lessons learned type of meeting. And we all talk about what could we have done differently. 
But God never has to do that because he doesn't need to learn anything. He knows it all. From Hebrews chapter 12 says this, See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. I'm going to try my best to explain what this passage means. First of all, we have seen a great shaking in our world, especially over the last couple of years. You may remember 2020, just last year, and I don't need to enumerate all of the things that happened in that year, but if you're sitting here today and if you're thinking, well, this is just the cycle, it just happens this way, with all due respect, you simply are not paying attention. Because there is so much prophecy that is being fulfilled at such a rapid pace right before our very eyes. But here's what the writer of Hebrews is really trying to say. The shaking of things in the earth signifies a removing of temporary things and the establishing of permanent things. Whenever he talked about make sure that you don't refuse him that speaks on earth. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 had just got through talking about that passage, I believe it's from Exodus chapter 19, where, where basically God told Moses, I'm getting ready to come down on Mount Sinai, and, and it's going to be scary. I'm going to come down, and there's going to be a thick blackness. You're going to hear a loud trumpet sound. Uh, you're going to hear the audible voice of God. And it's going to be a different situation than your feeling and experiencing now when I'm talking to you face to face. I'm going to put on my angry face. Now, parents know what angry faces are. If you don't want your kid, if you got two of them, to slap one kid alongside the face, you put on your angry face. And you should have an angry face. Every father has that look that he gives their kids. Nobody else in the room knows what that look is, except for the kids. And it can strike fear. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's a threat because, you know, that don't say this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Our kids never understand that. And really it does. I hated spanking my kids. But it needed to be done. And I hated sending my kids to a timeout, but it needed to be done. Now, I'm not talking about beating your kids. But, uh, you know, as, as my, my father used to say, applying the, the board of education to the seat of understanding. <laughs> and that's, that's what it was. Some things I didn't do because I was afraid of what my father would do to me. And, and, and so this is what God is doing on Mount Sinai, is, is he's putting on his angry face because he doesn't want Israel to sin against God. Because what happens when they sin is they harm themselves. Whenever God says no, he means don't hurt yourself. 
Okay, so God is saying, don't do this, don't commit adultery with your neighbor because that's a bad thing. Your neighbor's going to kill you if you do that. Don't steal because, you know, that's a bad thing. They're going to really, you know, you're not going to be able to live at peace with your neighbor if you steal. Keep me first because if you keep me first, then everything else comes in priority. So he's got these Ten Commandments and all these laws that he's given them. Now that came on Mount Sinai. And matter of fact, they said, they told God to stop talking. They said, God, you know, we want you to just, you know, you know give it through Moses because this is, we're straight out of our minds. We're, we are frightened of what's happening right now. Now that was how God shook the earth on Mount Sinai. There was another shaking that happened several thousand years later. But this shaking happened when Jesus died on the cross. There was a darkness that filled the earth just like it did over Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, at the implementation of the law. There was, a, there was not a voice from heaven um, necessarily, but the veil of the temple was rent into from the top to the bottom. And that symbolized that the way into the Holy of Holies did not lie anymore through a mosaic system, but through the flesh of Christ. In other words, through the blood. I'm glad for the blood today. Amen. And so, so there was a shaking. So God shook the earth once at Mount Sinai. He shook it again at Mount Calvary when the law was implemented. And so when Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook. sun was darkened for a time as the cross was implemented and the law was fulfilled. But God said in Hebrews 12, yet once more I'll shake the earth. And this time not just the earth but also the heavens. And the shaking is designed to remove things that are not going to remain permanent. So the things that we're seeing shaken right now in our world, our country, uh, you know, our economic system, all of those things are, are eventually going to be temporary and not a permanent establishment. Man builds his kingdoms up. He names you know, his real estate after himself, foster estates or foster farms or whatever. And we think that, it's, that, that somehow it's going to endure till the end of time. But nothing does endure that long except for the things that are eternal and the things that are heavenly. And so the shaking that we've seen is designed to, to, to remove things that won't remain. And we have seen that begin to come to pass. Nations are being shaken. The earth is being shaken. Things that we've placed our stability in are being shaken right now. There may be a mountain in your life that's always been there, like your rock. Something that you can always point to and, and sort of lean on. But now it seems like maybe some of, your, some of your mountains are beginning to shake. And even mountains can have a time limit on them. Mountains can split in two and mountains can crumble before our eyes. And we weep and we get sad and angry at that, but we need to get our eyes not on the mountain, but on the God of the mountain. There is a God who created the mountain. Our stability does not lie in the mountains we've always leaned on. Our jobs, our American economic system, our banking accounts, our wise ability to maneuver around uh, things and to save up cash and even our perfect health. But our stability must be firmly grounded in the God of the mountain. That's who we have to keep our eyes on. Because if we rely too heavily on the mountain instead of the God of the mountain, he just might take away the mountain to show you that he's still God. Because there's only one thing that cannot be shaken, and that is the God who never changes. From Matthew chapter 14 in verse 23, the Bible says this, And when he had sent the multitudes away, 
he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Jesus answered and said, If Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Now, to state the obvious, Peter did well as long as there wasn't any troubled sea that was there. Now, it's, it's interesting to note that Peter and all of the disciples, in fact, had traveled this very sea many times. They were very experienced fishermen. All, not all of them, but almost all of them were very, at least nine of the ten, twelve, uh, at least nine of, of the ten, of the nine of the twelve disciples were likely fishermen, and they had been on this sea before, and the boat that they were on was not some massive yacht, but it was a fisherman's boat. It would have been cramped, it would have been tight, it would have been a tight fit, and as Jesus begins to walk on the water, it was nothing for the Lord, Peter says in a moment of, of faith, Lord, bid me come on the water. And I'll come. And Jesus reaches out and says, well, come on up, come on up and, and, and walk with me for a while. And it didn't last very long, did it? Peter very quickly began to sink. God shook things in a way that night that Peter never thought they would be shaken. Amen. God shook things up in a way that caused them not to have any control over it. And all they could do was cry out to Jesus for assistance. And what happens when God shakes the things that we've always placed our trust in is our, our, our trust begins to wane and we often begin to panic underneath the weight of what we feel like God is working against us. Our faith, especially in America, has been directly attached to many external things that we thought were immovable. Now, we've always said we trust God. And as far as we knew, we did. But you don't know how much you trust God until your health goes bad. You don't know how much you really trust God until you lose your job and the rent's due. You don't really know how much faith you have until the thing you've been leaning on is suddenly taken away. And then it's revealed how much faith you really had in God. And so there might come a time... When God would take away some things in order that we would lean upon him more closely and that we would walk with him more intimately. Peter's faith was stronger after it was tested, after he failed, and then after he got up again. Every time Peter failed, you know, Jesus was always there to pick him up and he was always there to help him along. And not a single time uh, did the Lord ever let him fail permanently. And let me say, you may have failed. You may have failed in life. You may be here and you may say, well, I've asked that I'm far away from God. You may have failed in that chapter of your life. But there's another chapter God wants to write. And that chapter can be better than anything you ever would have experienced or known if you will only give him a chance. And maybe that's what the shaking was really all about with Peter. From Luke chapter 21, I want to read this verse. It says, 
and they shall fall by the edge of the sword. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews in his day. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. Everybody say until. Until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, Jesus is speaking here about the Jews in his day in the text. I'm going to try to explain what the times of the Gentiles are. I may not do a thorough job of it, but here's my understanding of it. The Jews always had a temple. And they had a temple because when they were in the wilderness, the Lord said, the Lord told Moses, make sure that when you get into your promised land that you worship not just anywhere you want, but worship in the place that I'll designate. Because that's going to be a place where I'm going to put my name there. And whenever they went to their promised land, that tabernacle of witness in the wilderness that Moses had erected, which was a tent, a, a movable tent, that was their, their worship place, was in a place called Shiloh for a while. And, and then, you know, Ichabod happened and, and the glory of the Lord departed. I don't have time to get into all that, but God left Shiloh. He left that place alone. Meanwhile, Israel continued to have church as normal, even though God had left. And eventually, you know, King David came along. David was a worshiper, and he built, he erected, or he made the plans at least to build the temple that his son Solomon built. They sinned, and God said, if you sin, then, then I'm going to do a bunch of bad stuff, and you're not going to be able to stay in their promised land. And so uh, it, King Nebuchadnezzar came through about 597 to 600 uh, B.C., and he destroyed their temple that Solomon had built. And they were in Babylon captivity for, for actually quite a while. But Daniel got a word from God. The prophet Daniel, when he was in captivity, that, that they would begin to build the temple again, even in perilous times. And you can read the book of Nehemiah and Ezra to find out how that happened. But they did rebuild their temple. That was about 350 B.C. And so the temple that stood at the time of Jesus would have been that temple, that, that, or what we call the second temple. Herod actually renovated it, but it was still, it was still that, you know, it was, see, some people call it Herod's temple, but it was the same temple. In other words, Herod just renovated it, basically. But it was that temple. Jesus stood out and, and, and he said prophetically, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And what they didn't understand was that he was prophesying that that system, that that temple represented, the Mosaic system, would ultimately be torn down along with their temple. And there would be a new temple. You know, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. I'm going to resurrect it after three days. I'm going to conquer death, hell, and the grave. And I'm going to live to be inside of you. And I'm going to build the house. Moses had his house that he built but I'm going to build my house. Jesus told Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. So, you know, Hebrews talks about, you know, that Moses built the house. Christ built the house. He was a son over his own house. He's the father and the son at the same time. He's the son in the house and he's the father that built it. He's the God who died on the cross and the spirit that raised that flesh up from the dead. He's son of man and son of God. 
He's the root and the offspring of David at the same time. Praise God. And so Jesus looked at the Jews in his day, and they had their temple built. And all the while, he was prophesying that their temple was going to come down. In one place, he wept over Jerusalem, and he said, Jerusalem, you know, you stoned the prophets, you killed them that are sent unto you, but I would have gathered you. How often would I have gathered you like a, like a, like a chicken uh, gathers her, her chicks under its wings, but you would not. And he was looking forward about 37, 38 years in time, and he was seeing how Jerusalem would be ransacked and burnt by, uh, by Rome. In fact, it was Titus, governor of Rome. Uh, he surrounded Jerusalem, and he ransacked, and he pillaged it, and, and, uh, and he burnt their temple to the ground. It was three years later, after it was burnt in 70 AD, that Jerusalem was plowed up again with a yoke of oxen. And Judea was renamed Palestinia, and Jerusalem was named Alela Capitolina, after the god Jupiter Capitolinus. And a temple was built there where the Jews, where the Jewish temple once stood. And that temple that they thought was their, their main line to God uh, became a place that was desecrated and plowed up with common yoke of oxen. You know, they, uh, the Rome. You know, the Roman army, this is what they did, not just to Rome, but to every city or nation that they conquered. They would plow up their city with a yoke of oxen eventually. And that was their way of destroying all of its history. They took up all of their streets, all of their homes had already been burnt to the ground. But it was all, you know, it, it, it was all burnt. And what was left was literally plowed into the ground with a yoke of oxen. And he named uh, Judea, Philistinia. Because, or Palestinia, what we know today is Palestine, because the Jews hated the Philistines and it was their common enemy. So he called it the thing that they hated just to get back at them. Now, the Palestinians are not the Philistines. Don't go away thinking that Brother Foster taught that, because that, that's wrong. But that's how it got its name. And so, Jesus said that there would be a time of the Gentiles... Now, the time of the Gentiles was basically a time when Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles. Because remember, for all these thousands of years, it had been under rule by, by Jews, by the Jewish people. It was their land. It was their promised land. God promised it to them. But, but the Lord Jesus was saying, look, there's going to come a time... Whenever you're not going to be in Jerusalem, you're not going to have a temple, and it's going to be trodden down to the Gentiles. That happened in 70 A.D., just like Jesus said it was going to happen. And from 70 A.D. right up until 19, you know, really beginning at the early part of the 19th century, Jerusalem was mostly uninhabited, or there was very few people living there. Uh, you know, there was nothing that would grow there. It was dry. There was no rain that came there. But as the Jews, you know, very... Very quietly, at the turn of the 19th century, right at the same time Azusa Street was happening, you know, and, and Pentecost, you, you know, Pentecostalism was beginning to catch fire again in the 20th century. Right about the time there were exciting things happening in the church, God was doing something in natural Israel as well because the Jews began to come back into their promised land again. And you know what? Suddenly it began to rain again. 
and they built olive yards and vineyards, and they built houses and erected places of worship there. And all of this was happening. And then World War I happened, World War II happened, and the Holocaust in 1948, the Jews have a saying, never again. Never again are we going to allow ourselves to be exterminated like that. They hadn't even been pronounced a nation for one day when multiple nations came against them. And, and a nation that was only less than 24 hours old, you know, with, with a steel in its spirit and face, you know, you know, sternly won that war. And then less than 20 years later in 1967, this nation of Israel, who probably didn't even have uh, much riches at that point, definitely they were not a superpower, but they defeated seven greater nations than them. And that was by the power of God. So Jesus said this. He said that Jerusalem would fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. He was talking about Jews. And he said Jerusalem is going to be trodden down and owned by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, when you read Romans 11 and 25, Paul said this, For I would not, brother, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, the gospel of Jesus was first preached to the Jews in Acts 2. At first, it was, it was meant for the Jews. It wasn't until Acts 10, somewhat 20-something years later, when God had to show Peter this gospel is not just for the natural seed of Abraham, but it's for whosoever will. Peter said that on the day of Pentecost, the promises unto you and whosoever will, even to them that are afar off. He was prophetically speaking of the Gentiles. He was speaking by the Holy Ghost. He didn't even know what he was saying. He wasn't taught, you know, in Peter's mind, those that were far off were, were the, you know, the, the scattered Jews. But what he was really saying was those that are afar off was you and I. Paul went to one place in, in Jews and they rejected him. And Paul said, forget it. I'm not going to the Jews anymore. From henceforth, I'm turning to the Gentiles. And aren't you glad he did that? Because that's why we're here today. We are the fruit of Paul's ministry. Praise God. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. So what I'm saying was that there was a blindness, but it wasn't a complete blindness in Ju among the Jews in in. In Jesus' day, it was in part because there were some Jews that did come in and did receive revelation, and the rest were cut off. Cut off from what? They were cut off from the promises of God. They were cut off from salvation because salvation does not come through a mosaic system. It comes through a Calvary system. So they were cut off. And so Jesus was saying that when Israel would be broken up and scattered until the times of the Gentiles was nearly up, and then Israel would become a nation again. And when you see Israel come together as a nation, and Jerusalem is no longer trodden down of the Gentiles, then the times of the Gentiles is nearly up. In other words, whenever Paul said, I'm going to go to the Gentiles so that God can take out a people for his name, what God what, what God, in essence, was saying was that for a while, I'm going to allow this blindness to happen to Jews, but now I'm going to come over here to the Gentiles, and I'm going to start saving people. And that's why you and I are here today, because somebody preached to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the same gospel that they preached on Acts chapter 2. The same one. 
And what Jesus was saying was, you better watch who owns Jerusalem. Because, you know, this time of the Gentiles is not only a time when Jerusalem is going to be trodden down of the Gentiles, but it's also going to be a time when God is taking out from the Gentiles the people for his own namesake. And he said, whenever you see that, that the Jews are back in their homeland and the Jews own Jerusalem and the Jews are pronounced a nation officially by the United Nations in 1948, he said, you can take this to the bank that my coming is right around the corner because the time of the Gentiles is almost up. What he was saying was that that's like Noah, you know, being told by God it's going to rain. And for 120 years he built and he labored and, and he strenuously labored and he was made fun of, no doubt about that. But seven days until the rain came, the Lord told Noah, he said, get ready because seven days and I'm going to shut the door of the ark and there's not going to be anybody that's going to get back in. So you might as well intensify your preaching. You better do everything you can because it's going to rain in seven days. The last week. And that's where we are prophetically speaking right now. You know, we see the Jews back in their homeland. We see that they're a nation. And that ought to make us remember the words of Jesus when he said, when you see that, then know that the times of the Gentiles is almost up. And now we're seeing all these things happen, you know, right before our eyes. You know how Afghanistan, we don't understand how all these things are shaping up. But I know this, God is shaping up this world and getting it ready for a battle of Armageddon. And he's getting ready to come back and take his people away. And while he's doing that, he is shaking things up that we thought could never be shaken. That's what's happening. The times of the Gentiles is also a time when God will turn to the Gentiles and take out of them a people for his name. From Romans 9. As he saith in O.C., that's Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not her beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, they shall be called the children of the living God. No, that's the Gentiles. And now that Israel is a nation, that signifies that our time is almost up. And when that occurs, a great shaking will begin to happen. From Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which are the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of this body. Now, what this verse is teaching was that when God cursed... Well, let's go back to Genesis 3 for just a moment. When Adam and Eve sinned, God gave four curses out. He cursed the man, the woman, the ground, and the serpent. Okay? Now, to a large degree, some of those curses have been removed. The curse, the curse of sin has been removed somewhat. We're not bound to sin anymore, but we still have a physical body. This body was not originally created by God to die. Death did not reign over man until Adam sinned. And then the dying process began, not to mention the extreme separation from God. And so that, you know, whenever Adam was, was, was in physically in the garden, he was tending to it. He's keeping it. And, and, you know, the Bible says that his job was to till the ground from which he was taken. But it was an easy job. Anybody ever here ever gardened? Anybody ever have a garden? I really admire people that garden. Y'all are awesome because you got patience. It takes patience. To really garden and do it well. And 
my wife has the one is the one with the green thumb in the family. It's definitely not me. I am a plant murderer. <laughs> don't don't give them no plants to me. You can give them to my wife. She knows how to grow them, and, but and, and and they do well into her. But I I'm just it's not my thing. But with Adam, it was an easy task. He didn't have to sweat. There were no stones and thorns and and, and thistles, and there were rabbits eating. Eating your vegetables. You know, there was none of that. It was an easy task. But after Adam sinned, the climate of the earth changed and became violent. And that's why we have tornadoes. We have hurricanes. We've got all these natural catastrophes in the earth right now. And what we see is that as the wickedness of man becomes more extreme, the earth groans under the weight of its curse even more. And what it's waiting for, according to this verse, is the redemption of our body. In other words, our spirit has been redeemed, but this body is not redeemed yet. We have a fallen nature. Our five senses lead us away from God, if you let them. The Bible calls this sensual. What your eyes can see, what your ears can hear, what your, even what, to a large degree what goes into your mouth. We can commit the sin of gluttony. What we touch, the things, all of our, you know, our physical body you know, naturally goes against the will of God. So we've got to keep it under subjection to the power of the Holy Ghost. And so one of these days, I'm going to be walking down the street, and just like that, I'm going to hear the sound of a trumpet, and the very next step I take, I will have an immortal body. And it'll happen that quick. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And what we're seeing right now is that the earth is groaning under the weight of sin. And they're waiting for that day when the sun's, when our physical and mortal bodies are going to be redeemed. Because then the curse from the earth is also going to be taken away. And so just as, you know, a woman pains and travails in pain until the time that she physically gives birth to that kid, whenever she feels, you know, those labor pains coming, her labor pains will become closer together and become exceedingly more painful until she finally is ready to have that baby and the baby comes out of the womb. And that's what's happening in the earth is the earth is groaning and travailing and it's waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. It's hoping, it's, uh, you know, it's pleading, it's reeling under the weight of sin. And that's to a large degree. That's why Jesus said it's going to get worse. You're going to see more earthquakes. You're going to see more, you know, more natural catastrophes, more pestilence. That is directly linked to the heart condition of man. The lack of morality. You know, you know Proverbs says, you know, uh, King Solomon says, There is a generation that is right in its own eyes, but is not pure from all its filthiness. It's right in his own eyes. That's exactly where we are living in a self-justified generation. I'm good, you're good, we're all good, but good is the enemy of God. God didn't say be good. He said be holy, for I am holy. I'm not trying to be good. I'm trying to be like him. And there's only one way to be like Jesus, and that's not get up and watch the latest self-help book. It's go down on your knees and repent and go down in a watery grave in the name of Jesus Christ and have God fill you with the Holy Ghost. That's the only way to do it. And it's the only way to be cleansed. We are seeing, we are seeing uh, the decline of morality and the increasing the uh, wickedness of man. And it shouldn't surprise any of us because Jesus told us it was going to be like that. Now what does this have to do with an unchangeable God? From Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, watch what he says, yet once it is a little while. Now remember, this is the passage Paul quoted in Hebrews. Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all the nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God will first shake things, and then he will send his glory. A worldwide revival will immediately precede the return of Christ for his people. He went on to say this, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, says the Lord. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord. What he was saying was that, you know, you can go to Hebrews chapters. Two, three, or four, right around there, he talked about a house that Moses built. You know, that was the Mosaic law, the Mosaic system. Then there was the house that Christ built. And he said there was a house that had glory whenever you, you know, King Solomon uh, physically dedicated that temple. And the glory of God came down so strong the priests could not continue to minister. And they said, wow, this is a great glory. But there was another glory that was revealed in the house that Christ built. And that didn't come down in a physical temple, but it came into an upper room. That glory, you know, the, the pillar of fire that sat on top of their heads was a greater glory than the pillar of fire that rested on top of the camp of Israel in the days of the wilderness journey. Because then it was around them, but now it is in them. And he said, in the midst of all of this shaking, there is going to be two houses. One house is going to have a greater glory, and, or, and the other house is going to have a lesser glory. We are part of the greater glory house. And I believe also that, in, that to a large extent what God did in Acts Chapters, you know, all throughout the book of Acts in the first century is, is not going to be anything compared to what he's going to do next. God always does something bigger and better next. He never goes from big to small. But he said there's going to be a shaking. What, is God, what God is going to do will be greater than anything he has ever done before. When will this happen? In the midst of a great shaking. Where will it happen? In this house. What am I saying? I'm saying that there is a shaking and a revival going on at the same time. And I think that, that, to, you know, that to a very small degree, we've just kind of stuck our toes into the midst of what God is getting ready to do. Not only in the church at large, but in this very church, this church physically. Where is God going to do it? He said, in this house. In other words, right where you're at. Wherever you're at, wherever you need it, wherever you feel that things are being shaken up and tossed to and fro, God said, that's where I'm going to reveal my glory at if you'll let me step in. God will step into any storm you let him step into. Are things being shaken in your life? They're being shaken to show that he is God and he is the unchangeable God. 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'm almost done now. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind rent the mountains. This is Elijah. And break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not on the wind. After the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not on the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not on the fire. After the fire a still small voice. Now you know, you have to wonder why God allowed all those things to happen immediately preceding 
how God was going to speak to him. But, you know, I, I've always admired people that have the uncanny ability to stay calm when everybody else is running around like Chicken Little, saying the sky is falling. You know people like that? You know, they're just, they have like this calming effect on people. And these are the people you want in your corner and in your life when things are really going bad and crumbling. You want people that speak stability, that, that are like rocks, that, that know how to stay calm. And so, you, you know, this is why God was, this is why I feel like God was speaking to Elijah in that still small voice. God, sorry, Elijah had never heard God speak in that way before. Remember, this was the prophet of fire. Power. You know, he, he's the, he, he was the prophet who called down fire from heaven. Three times. Called down fire. He prayed. It stopped raining. He prayed again, and it started to rain. A man that possessed and wielded great authority. But when this prophet got discouraged and was backed up into a corner and hiding in a cave, God sent an earthquake to destroy the mountain on which he stood. And he sent a fire to burn up everything he could see. And he sent a strong wind, probably maybe a tornado of some kind, perhaps. And after the fire, and after the earthquake, and after the wind, and after Elijah still had no answers, God spoke to him in a way he had never heard him before, and it was in a still, small voice. Because that's how God speaks. When everybody else is losing their heads, God, God is in control. That's why he spoke in a still, small voice. And also, I think that to a large degree, that Elijah expected God to speak to him in the way that Elijah was feeling at the moment. Like, you know, it, and to illustrate this, you know, whenever something bad is happening in our life and we go to somebody and we tell them, we want them to react the way we're feeling. I mean, that's... That's just that's called empathy. You know, if we're feeling sad and if we're feeling anxious and if we're feeling frightened, then they should feel that way too. I don't know why that makes us feel better. But apparently it does. But this is so I think maybe Elijah knew God so well, he had prayed with God so much that that Elijah expected God to respond that way based upon the way Elijah was feeling. And sometimes we kind of transfer our feeling and our lack of control onto God. As if God should be feeling this way. As if anything surprises God. As if God woke up one day and said, oh man, what happened down here? I had no idea this was going to happen. You know what? God knew it before it even began. There was another time whenever God whispered and it was when Jesus was in the ship and there was a, there was a great story. Let's stand. And Jesus was in the ship, and there was a great storm. Again, this was another storm. I think it's right around the end of Mark chapter 4. And the Bible says, do you remember what Jesus was doing during the storm? Remember what he's doing? He was sleeping. Now, I can sleep on a stormy night really good. But I can't sleep in a stormy ship on a stormy night. 
The Bible uses the word ship, but you understand, this wasn't no ship. This was a boat. I mean, I don't know how big the boat was, but it was a boat big enough to fish in, but it wasn't, wasn't this massive yacht designed for 12-foot swells. And the water was coming into their ship. Somehow, Jesus was sleeping through all of that. Now, we could say, well, he was tired, which he probably was. The other aspect of that was, you know, the storm didn't really surprise Jesus at all. Because you may have heard, he's God. And he knows a few things, so I've heard too. But he was sleeping. And sleeping doesn't show a lack of empathy. It shows the fullness of faith. It's not that God doesn't care when he's silent. It's just that he's not worried about it. And we plead with God and we say, Lord, why is this happening? Give me answers. I want to know. I want to know. I want to know. And, and, and all sometimes we hear is that still small voice. And sometimes all it says is, be patient. Wait. Wait on me. I am God. I am still in control. And, and, and his voice has a calming effect upon us. And it was the same way with Elijah as it is often with us. He needed to get his eyes off the mountain and get it on the God of the mountain. Let's lift our hands today. Thank you, Jesus. Maybe you need a calmness that will enter your spirit today. Maybe, you know, I feel like God is trying to say to somebody, just walk with me. Just be patient while I work. God has not forgotten you. He knows everything you need. He knows the beginning from the ending. And he is not going to let you down if you put your faith in him. I promise you that. We're going to open up these altars. Why don't you come and just find a place for a little bit just to talk to God. Let God minister to your heart today. Thank you, Jesus. He's the unchangeable God.